Welcome to Bibliophiles, a podcast for lit lovers. In today's episode, the Center for Lit team continues its quest to discover the great ideas in books of every description, ancient classics to fresh bestsellers, epic poems to bedtime stories. We're glad you came along. We hope you find this discussion as provocative and inspiring as the books themselves. Want to join the great conversation? Stay tuned. You've come to the right place. Hey, welcome back to Bibliophiles, everyone. Adam Andrews with you once again at the head of the Center for Lit crew, joined as always by my son, Ian. Well, hey. His wife, Emily. Hi. And my daughter, Megan. Hello. My wife, Missy, is out of town today. Hopefully she'll be joining us soon again on a future episode. But today we will do our best to carry on without her. And it not, will be difficult. Not say anything that's going to get us in trouble with her. <laughs> that will be even more difficult. <laughs> which might be the hardest trick of all. Uh, today's topic, I'm going to, I'm really excited about it as usual, but I want to turn it over to Ian for an introduction of the topic and uh, uh, have him sort of take the lead. Um, Ian, you're a little bit more comfortable with this than I am maybe, or maybe I'm just setting it up so that I can be the one that gets to speak my mind and you can throw me softballs. I think that's fine. I'm okay with that. I'm okay with all of those interpretations. However that is, I'm going to turn it over to you. Well, thanks. Um, The reason that the topic came up uh, now, and I think this is something that's been sort of hovering around the corner of the Bibliophiles conversation for a long time, um, but... I want to say the reason that we are going to take it up today is because we got an absolutely excellent comment on our website um, after our previous episode of the podcast. At that episode, in case any of you listeners are interested in hearing sort of part one, which we didn't really know was part one at the time, uh, is Bibliophiles number 48, Authorial Intention and Meaning in Literature. And I'll sum up that comment without using anyone's name, although... um, as I said, if you're interested, the comment is public on the website, and I encourage you to go read it because it was just tremendously well put. But to make sort of a long comment short, um, a listener of ours says, hold on a second. What about the fact that, and I get it, right? First of all, I get it about the authorial intention idea and the fact that we need to read literature by trying to understand what the author was trying to say as he sat down to write the work. Given all of that, what about the fact that necessarily the experience of the reader plays a part in meaning. Mm. In other words, as we're reading, based on our own life experience, based on the set of eyes that we're using and the personality that we have, the education that we've received, all of those things necessarily play a part in how we understand a work that we're addressing together. So how do you how do you make room for that in your definition of good reading? And I'd like to expand that question a little bit and say, in order to answer it, I think we need to make room for that principle in our understanding of art more broadly, and maybe of its purpose. Well, so with that in mind, what do you guys think? How do we make room for that experience, that personal experience of the reader with a work of art? Well, before we dive into that question, I, the first thing I feel like saying is that I identify with that impulse and can even point to elements of my own reading experience that that back up what the commenter is saying. I mean, just to take an example of, of Huckleberry Finn, the great American classic, which I read as a young, as a child, really, before I was old enough to, you know, get Twain's darker meanings and his more subtle social jabs. I read it as a, a glorious story of adventure about Huck Finn and his friend rafting down the Mississippi river and having all these wonderful adventures. And I got communicated to me 
a wonderful sense of the idyllic joy of boyhood, the carefree experiences that they had on the raft, that feeling of freedom, that feeling of exhilaration that, um, that summer brings, that the countryside brings, that being off on an adventure brings. And for me at that point, that's kind of what the story meant. And, uh, I, I still today think that those are elements of Twain's intention, if you can put it in those terms. But as I continued to read that story, as I grew up, I, not because Twain was suddenly saying anything different, but because I was growing and I was increasing in my own understanding of how the world works and of human relationships and of darker truths about the world, like prejudice and intolerance and those sorts of things, the meaning of the story uh, unfolded and became a little bit more nuanced. And yeah. again, I, I wouldn't say that Twain meant something different 10 years, 15 years later. He obviously had, the words were the same. I was able to understand his story at a different level. And I guess in order to to support what the commenter is saying, my own experience of the story that I brought to it became a component of its significance. So anyway, I guess I would say that to say she certainly got a point and we should consider it. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, one of the first things that that occurs to me um, as I'm listening to you talk is, well, in that situation the reader themselves and their perce- their ability to perceive meaning in the work is really what's changing over time, not the meaning itself. In other words, it is as though we have etched the words to Huckleberry Finn in stone. The articles aren't changing. The nouns are all in the same spots relative to the verbs. Nothing has changed about this work of art. It's published it's in 1885, still dictionary. the same book it was then. Yeah, exactly. And and if we're careful to look at it that direction, the meaning of a work of art is stationary. It has to be. Otherwise, we're attacking something fundamental about communication, namely language, right? We're attacking the ability of language to say anything. But I think also a distinction that might serve us really well is a distinction between the author, the man himself, Mark Twain, and the text of Huckleberry Finn, and it might be fruitful to ask ourselves, what's the real locus of meaning there? I mean, uh, the text is a lens through which we're looking at the author and his opinions, perhaps. But as a lens, it has properties of its own that are unique. Um, and I, I, Emily, you're, you actually have, have put this maybe better than me a time or two on the topic just of the limitations of an author to really communicate something purely. What, what did you say about that? Well, I mean, this is something that happens between all individuals who are trying to communicate, right? Words words are tricky things. They're slippery and they have an abundance of meaning. And so a pure communication is, is something that is difficult. And not only that, but a, an author is a human being who is much more than intellect, but is also spirit and heart and mm. belly and and all of those complicated things work together as he is pouring out his his tale. And so I guess an intention could come not necessarily just from the mind, but from other parts of his being as well, which can muddy communication. In other words, when we when we undertake to read a work of art, what we're trying to do is understand somebody's mind. And it's entirely possible they haven't made themselves perfectly clear. And that's not necessarily a failing. Mm-hmm. That's not necessarily a failing that he hasn't, uh, that he, he can't communicate those things. It's, it's just a marker of how complicated human beings are. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Not a failing of his, of his use of language, but a failing of language. Right. Language as, as sort of, um, oh, what's a good way to put it? Um, as a symbol of meaning. Mm, yeah. Right. 
language yeah. as a symbol of meaning. I think what Emily's suggesting is that the the uh, the intentions of a man, which include not only his verbal intentions but also his emotional and spiritual and psychic intentions, are broader and deeper and more nuanced than language can fully capture. Yeah, and and well, go ahead, Emily. Oh no, no, finish your thought. Well, that's pretty much what I was going to say that the, no matter how good a writer he is, no matter how clear a communicator he is, um, he's a human being talking to other human beings. And in the very same way that if you were having a live conversation with him, you would get an idea of what he, of what he meant by understanding his words. There may actually be subtext that he couldn't put into words that you could sense somehow that could happen in in reading as well, if we, if we consider the writing of literature to be an authentic human form of communication, is that kind of what you're going for? Yeah. And to get more at the point of the commenter, that's not just true of the author, but it's true of the reader as well, that we can't just receive his communication with our mind, but it's going to affect us in our heart and soul as well, which is really the strength of literature in the first place. So no wonder we get confused so often in thinking that the meaning can come from ourselves because two people reading the same book are going to come away with very different experiences, probably because they've had different experiences in their own lives. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it is a projection of meaning from the reader's own life experience onto the work of art itself. Or maybe it's better to say that that particular work of art, that expression of the human condition evokes a certain range of meanings from the reader. That was its goal, was to evoke those those responses. But then there's a difference, isn't there, between responding and listening. And this is where we, this is where we, as a as literature teachers for a living, um, get all hot and bothered, is when people consider the response a uh, firm decision on what was in the mind of the author, yeah. without having taken the time to quiet their own minds and listen for just a second. But it strikes me that we've had that conversation long enough and loud enough that it's worth going ahead and saying, okay, what do we do now that we have approached some sort of thematic reading? What about the parts that's, that speak to us that aren't as evident? What about the nuances? What about the subtleties? Right. Or maybe a better way to put that is, given that our first principle of interpretation is that reading is listening to the voice of another mm-hmm. and going to the text that he's actually put down on paper as our source. And looking at that text as the source of its own meaning. Now, what kinds of ears can we listen with? Mm-hmm. Right? How many different yeah. kinds of voices does that text speak with? There's a literal one. There's a symbolic one. There's a figurative one. There's a mm-hmm. spiritual one, perhaps an emotional one. This is a person talking. Right. And mm-hmm. he's trying to make a limited art form stand in the place of an unlimited kind of communication, uh, an, uh, right. an eternal soul, in other words. And so that actually puts a, a burden on the reader to not only listen carefully, but to be a soul himself. Mm-hmm. I like that. Megan, you've been hemming and hawing. Do you have, do you have a, a contribution to make over there? Well, I don't know how helpful it will be depending on where you want to take this conversation, but it is the question that I've had in my mind since the beginning of this particular episode today. Ready, set, go. Um, This kind of reading that you're presenting is fascinating. And I loved having this kind of conversation in college. Um, 
you bow to the text as the source of meaning. I like the distinction that you made between the author himself and the text that he's created. And you have fun with it. You are open to listening carefully and looking in a variety for the variety of voices that you mentioned, Dad. I think that's a wonderful part of this conversation and really important. Um, it's confusing, though. It's difficult. And is there um, is there like a an age group that this particular kind of reading should be introduced to? Should you start talking about this with young kids or should you wait till high school or even college to let them think about it this way? Because I think you're right that we're going to have an emotional response to a book. I loved the comment that was left on our, our website um, this week. And I think she's absolutely right that we, we have a response that's evoked from us uh, by the text and kids do too. So when do we talk to them about that intentionally? Or is it just the teacher's job to know that that kind of reading is going on and kind of shepherd them through the process of reading well? What do you think about that? Such a great question. Yeah, that's awesome. Ian, you I mean, have, my, my, go ahead. My Ian. first res response to that question is absolutely there's an appropriate age group. And the way I would put it is, is, uh, is this, I don't think we exit the womb needing to learn to um, air our own opinions, right? Um, and maybe that's just because I'm a member of the Andrews family. I don't know. Well, it's particularly <laughs> difficult for you. It's, it's particularly hard for me. But, I, but I, my instinct is that little humans are very comfortable being the gods of their own worlds and that right. what they really need to learn to do is shut up and listen and that it takes 18 to 24 years to teach them how to do that if they're lucky. And so um, I, I do think the kind of reading and the question that we're taking up here certainly shouldn't be broached until high school and maybe not even then sort of at the teacher's discretion based on how well the students have learned to sit up, to shut up and listen first. I don't know if you guys agree with that. Well, yes, on the one hand. And on the other hand, there is something going on in the reading process that maybe making what you said about it just being the teacher who needs to be aware of it. But when you read a story, we're not just looking for a syllogism so that we can fill out the thematic bubble and check and move on. Mm -hmm. It is something that is supposed to affect the reader and enter their heart and work on them in some way. So there's an element of responsiveness that's necessary to read well then. Right. I mean, it's appropriate. It, it is just going to happen because that's the nature of literature. Well, and it's then the also, goal of the I, author, right? The author's not, right. not we, writing to help students fill out a syllogism. Absolutely. Right. So this is something that is supposed to work on us and affect us in our hearts and, and minds. So, so it seems like we don't want to cut off students from that. And I agree with what you're saying, Ian, that I don't think that the problem is that they're not going to have that happen. But I think there is a place for acknowledging that this is the intended goal of literature in the first place, right? Mm. Yeah, I like that. I, I, like I wonder that. if I wonder if a combination of those two comments would be possible that with mm -hmm. students, the goal of literature ought to be to teach and inculcate sympathetic listening. In yeah. other words, to to listen with an open mind and an open heart and to be a responder to the idea of the author not to try and um, to mine his book for the answer to a question, what is the theme of this story, right. but to enter into a conversation, to sit at his feet, as it were, and take into the heart the th kind of things he's saying. That process, if you, if you imagine doing it 
teaching a student to do it with a human speaker, that process involves a, a visceral response on the part of the listener, doesn't it? Well, right. And sometimes like when you disagree, you get that gut feeling of, I disagree with this. I don't like it. Right. But that doesn't, you wouldn't, it isn't appropriate to reject a person because of that. Mm. And so it, it seems like it, it would be appropriate to struggle through that in the reading process anyway. Well, yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. It's, you wouldn't, you wouldn't throw away a person just because you disagreed with them. You would wait patiently to understand what they were saying. And then you'd have to ask follow-up questions. What right. is it about their conversation that you're disagreeing with? And that's what we do, hopefully, in a literature class is we examine the text. We say, where did we find that thing we disagreed with in the text? Why do you have that feeling, that emotional response? Where was it in the story that you found that idea that's so controversial to you? Now we can have a conversation about it. Right. Where might it have come from? Why might he have said that? And maybe we can understand why he said that in the first place. Mm -hmm. Now, these are all, these are all questions and conversations that are all aimed at trying to understand what the author meant. They're right, not, constantly sending the kid back to the text. Right, they're not aimed at trying to um, contribute to what the author meant, only trying to understand it, right? In all of these questions that are appropriate, I think you're right, Megan, for students, the goal is to wrestle with the meaning that the author was trying to get across and come to understand it, whether or not we agree with it. Right. And I, and I wonder if, if the implication of what Ian is saying is that the older we get, the more experienced we get, the more we come to know the author as an adult, just like us, who is doing his best to communicate something that's beyond his own power of language. Right. Would you say then, following that train of thought, that the older we get, the more we have to contribute to an author's work? Would you say that we're contributing as we get older? I can never, no. I can never be drugged to the edge of saying that. I, I can't either. My old habits yeah. are too hard, too, too deeply ingrained. Here's what I would say, and I've had that argument made to me before, and um, if he is listening, he knows who he is. Um, <laughs> I've had that argument made to me before, and the, the root of it is a good observation, which is that you can't necessarily mean in a vacuum. In other words, the, when I communicate with you, it is in falling on your ears that my words have substance, weight, and meaning. The only person that can mean in a vacuum without an other to mean at is God himself. Yes. Right. And so in that sense, an author not being God is necessarily finite and needs a listener in order to mean. So I get that. That makes a ton of sense to me, and I'm willing to go that far with you. But the idea that now that the author is long dead and the artifact itself of his writing, right, has been in some ways divorced from its context, is, has existed beyond the time in which, in which it was written, uh, beyond the people to whom it was written, um, I think that means we need to take more care to reunite it with its context and with the ideas of the man who Not wrote less. It. Not less. Right. Well, right. Yeah. I'm just thinking of an experience with Anna Karenina, which I finished recently this time around because of the way that Tolstoy painted his characters and the, and the ideas that he was um, playing with. I, in my own experience, was able to identify with Kitty really well because I'm I'm young and I've made the same stupid decisions and so that element really moved me I imagine that as I get older I'm, I'm probably going to identify 
with Anna Karenina herself more as I sin against my husband more and, and fail in loving uh, unselfishly. Mm-hmm. And when I come to it again in 20 years, it's not that I will have contributed to it, but that that my soul will have opened wider to receive more of what Tolstoy was trying to communicate. Right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Right. Uh, and that you're suggesting a slightly different definition of the word meaning than um, than the one we often use and have used historically at Center for Lit, because it sounds like what you're saying is that as your ex, as your experience develops and changes in life, your experience of Tolstoy's work also develops and changes. Mm-hmm. And the significance of Tolstoy's work to your own life changes and develops. And so right, the art hasn't changed. Right. I've changed. Yeah. And so if you're using meaning as a synonym for significance mm-hmm. to your own experience, then if, the, if that's what we mean by meaning, then the meaning of a work is going to change and develop as the reader does. If we use meaning as a synonym for um, something that the that the text or the or the author has as a permanent possession of in and of itself, then we have to come down on the other side of that fence. Well, one of the questions I think really uh, that addresses that tension is, and again, I've had this question asked at me before. Um, so, do you at really you think? To you. Oh, at me. <laughs> Trust me, it was at me. Um, do you really think that Tolstoy is capable of meaning all these, all these different varied readings? For example, what if people can support from the text itself two opposite ideas, one wherein the text is saying this and one wherein the text is saying this, and the evidence is equally strong for both of them? What do you do about that, you antiquated authorial intent people, you? Are the two things mutually exclusive, like A and not A? That's what they were saying. They were setting up a world in which it was A and not A. So you've never wrestled over two sides of an issue in your own heart? Right. I mean, I think that is the response. It comes to, eventually it comes down to the author was a person. He was a man. And if he was doing his job well, he was trying to reflect a whole world full of ideas, many of whom oppose one another. Mm-hmm. And so I think, I don't know, I, I think I can see room for a category of nuance and expression that he didn't necessarily sit down and plan out on a big sheet of paper before he started writing his novel. He's writing about life. But um, you must always allow, well, I don't know, what's the best way to say this? Are we describing a world in which it's impossible ever to say, wait, 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 that's not what I meant. Hmm. Hmm. If, 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 if in the world, it is possible. It is a legitimate thing to say, wait, 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 that's not what I meant. Then every work of literature must at some level have a meaning that can be gotten at, and there can be a bad interpretation of it. Right. And I think that is what we would, what I would mean, I won't speak for all of us, but I have a gut instinct about the fact that you guys agree with me about this. That might be, um, one of the things that we would defend most strongly is that misreading is not only possible, but widespread. Right. You can, you can interpret badly and you can come up with a verdict on the story that the author absolutely does not agree with and didn't intend to write. But, but uh, having said that and having st- stood there as our first principle, I think as you were suggesting at the beginning of this session, Ian, we can go then on to say, uh, 
you know, since an author is a, is a full orbed person and is trying to communicate something that language itself is a poor tool for, then a reader has a role to play in interpretation. Is, is that a fair yeah, summary of what I think you're what suggesting? Is, having had a conversation with, with you, I would never assume that in listening to you speak a sentence, I had heard the entire contents of your mind and heart on that particular issue. Yeah. I would assume that I had heard one strain of the things that you think about that one aspect of your perspective. Um, and I don't think that, that our perspective should be any different on the great works. Yeah. In fact, as artists, first and foremost, and as accomplished artists, uh, these men have more to think than the average Joe and have thought it better than the average Joe. And so their work merits a level of attention that can withstand multiple, multiple readings. I, I would say that one thing we, we don't, in order to, to give the commenter that occasioned this discussion as much leeway as possible, we still don't ever have to give up the idea that um, we don't ever have to admit that an author might have done something accidentally. And whether or not he is um, being infinitely specific in his language is not the same thing as saying uh, he's, he's just accidentally writing down great art. Right. Is that, yeah. is that, am, am I making sense there? Yeah. Well, it just seems like that's a, just approaching the work as a student. That's the best way to, to open yourself up and, and sit at the feet of the author and get the most that you possibly can. Because if you come in with the assumption that it was accidental, you're going to miss it because you're right. not going to respect it. So right. even if you're wrong, even if there were things that were accidental, why would you focus on that? I agree. I think that's well put. Well, the main thing I think is really um, that we can gain from talking about the differences between these two approaches is that um, by not uh, treating the reading project as a hunt for a syllogism, as a hunt for a particular argument, we avoid... Um, we avoid convincing ourselves and our students that one reading is sufficient yeah, and that one time through the great divorce is plenty, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I think there, we should resist at, at any cost, well, maybe not any cost. We should resist at most costs, um, reducing literature to an argument because it is a work of art. And by the way, I just thought the first time you said that the, I never heard the idea of reducing a work of literature to a syllogism or reducing an interpretation to a syllogism. And I thought of an example of that, just in case some of our listeners are unclear what you mean by that, um, to take the, the, uh, the great short story by Jack London from the um, early 20th century to build a fire and interpret it this way would qualify. A, uh, Jack London was an atheist naturalist. B, to build a fire is a story written by Jack London. Therefore, C, to build a fire is an atheist naturalist screed mm-hmm. and is an expression of atheistic naturalism. That's, that's reducing uh, an interpretation of a work to a, to a syllogism derived from the author as a cardboard cutout, the author as a simple expression of his, of his ideas. And it leaves out, I think, the consideration of what we've been talking about here, um, Jack, Jack London is a, is a person. He's a human being. Only one facet of his intellectual and spiritual and moral life is atheistic naturalism. Mm. And 
he might have written a story without reference to atheistic naturalism. His political and theological positions are one factor that we can use to interpret his story. The text itself is the expression then, not just of his atheistic naturalism, A equals B equals C, but as an expression of his personality, a part of which might be explained by his theological positions, and another part might just be his artistic genius and his desire to uh, communicate something on a human level. And so the, the process of interpretation is not reducible to that kind of syllogistic thinking. That's what you're after, right? When you say re- mm-hmm. interpretation as a syllogism. Yeah. Yeah. I think that is what I'm after. I, I think I'm, I'm sympathetic to a kind of reading that perceives uh, a greater depth and a um, broader width in a work of art than we could possibly encounter in one reading. Mm-hmm. So this has been for all you listeners, an argument in favor of reading your favorites over and over again. Yeah, that's right. Remember? Yeah, that's hold, right. Hold your, hold, hold this idea to your hearts in over the course of until we talk to you again, the list of books that you could read is far too long. You'll never get to them all. Never be afraid to grab up an old favorite and sit down and read it again. Because the author may be the same guy he was when he wrote it down, but, but you may not you be. Or not. Yeah, that's true. Indeed, indeed. Thank you, Ian. Well done. I might, I might give you the reins more often in uh, future episodes. <laughs> well, I'm, uh, you know, I, it would have been kind of fun if we didn't even talk to one another about how the reins were changing hands and see if anyone noticed. I've heard from several listeners that our voices are pert near identical. On- <laughs> That is funny. Well, we will hash that out in between episodes and uh, let you listeners go on with your lives. Thank you for joining us and for tuning in. Uh, We appreciate your attention. We appreciate your feedback and your comments. Speaking of that, please rate the podcast if you get the chance and give us comments in the appropriate comment boxes. Uh, Swing by the website if you want as well, centerforlit.com to see what we're doing in the world of reading and homeschooling and teaching and uh, living together. And we would love to um, have conversations with you in any format that you choose. It's been fun as usual. Hope to see you again real soon. And until we meet again, happy reading. Happy Happy reading. reading. Bibliophiles is a production of the Center for Lit Podcast Network. Find new episodes each month on the web at centerforlit.com, where you'll discover dozens of resources to equip and inspire you to participate in the great conversation, including the Pelican Society, a membership program for folks who love the Center for Lit approach to all things literary. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Until next time, happy reading, everyone.